listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Long-Term Cure Pharmacy Podcast, where you're going to have way more fun than staring at the sun for 30 minutes with binoculars. Welcome back, everyone, to the LTC Pharmacy Podcast. Tamara and I are here talking more by popular demand about pharmacogenomics in LTC. Uh, We've gotten a lot of great feedback, and we appreciate you guys reaching out and telling us what you thought of the last show and uh, kind of what we brought up. As a recap, um, well, I guess before we get into the recap, Tamara, what's been going on? Yeah, I mean, a lot. I guess January flew by and we're already halfway through February. What's new here? Um, I had the pleasure of speaking at the North Dakota Counseling Association Conference um, this week on pharmacogenomics, which was awesome just to give them a little snippet of what PGX looks like and how it could help them in their practice. And so that was fun. Um, Been going to facilities. A lot of my facilities have been getting surveyed lately, so... Just yeah. work is keeping me on my toes. How about you? Yeah, same. Been doing a lot of facility visits, which is fun. I always like to interact and get to know the people there, see how I can help. But busy, right? Like it's always, you're always uh, having to change what your plans were sometimes based on the needs that they have, which is always fun. Keeps you on your toes. Did a little bit of speaking myself. Spoke at an AMCP conference uh, this past couple of weeks ago. And that was yeah. nice. Wonderful people there. Um, so yeah, I mean, just work and work and, and a little play. <laughs> work and work and more work. And then some, yeah, and then some and I are both the... workaholics. I mean, it's just, we love it. I mean, we love it. Now spouses may not always feel the same way. Family might not always feel the same way, but we love it. We love to work. So, um, but yeah, back, back again for some more pharmacogenomics. And this is such a hot topic. And I think people are very curious. In fact, the feedback that we've gotten just shows that you guys wanted to know more about it and uh, what it looks like in our little niche setting of long-term care. And so last time we talked about what pharmacogenomics was, and we'll bore you with more definitions again, but then we talked about how it can be impactful. And we looked at polypharmacy and all the benefits that it can, uh, can help with there. We looked at reduction of some adverse effects and then also some various studies about improving care and cost savings and, um, you know, ineffective medications and reducing medications and all of those kind of things. This time around, though, we're going to build upon some of that. So if you didn't listen to the last episode, then please go ahead and listen to it before this one so that you can kind of have a good foundation into what we're talking about today. But this time around, for part two of our pharmacogenomics talk, we're looking at cost avoidance. So we mentioned this kind of last time, and um, you know, there's so many benefits to this. And besides the fact that we can reduce those meds down, naturally we're going to see cost avoidance. And so Tamara and I were talking about this before we got on here, and what does that look like? I actually found a couple studies, again, to throw out to you guys. You seem to really like the studies last time, so here we are again talking a little bit about the the various ones that are out there. There was one that looked at cost avoidance in the elderly uh, by pharmacist-led pharmacogenomics. Uh, it looked at a study called the Farm Genome Pace Study, like 200 consultations. So a, a big hunk of people there 
429 drug gene pairs, of which 158 were actually clinically actionable. So we talked a little bit about that last time, how you get these kind of results in and not everything you're going to be acting upon, right? Like there's going to be some that really are going to benefit that person most. And depending on the lab company that you're working with on this, they kind of flag those for you and try to help you out with that so that most pharmacists can understand green, yellow, and red, or some combination thereof. The green, yellow, and red columns are key. I mean, <laughs> I think it makes it so nice for both pharmacists and patients and even providers to be able to read. It's like, all right, what's in my green column? And if it's not in my green column, it's easy to find out why it's a yellow or a red, which I much appreciate. Right. And I always find it so interesting. Like, you know, I, I like the green, yellow, and red too. We actually do something in, in our company did not sidetrack the conversation too much, but I do green, yellow, and red. And people are like, oh, those colors are just too strong. Are there too? I'm like, come on now. Green, yellow, and red, easy, easy. So easy. based on those, like if you have some reds that are popping up there and that you need to have as actionable items, this study actually found that 158 of those or about 40% were clinically actionable, which goes right along with what we talked about last time. If you remember that, you know, a big hunk of the patients need interventions, 71% of pharmacist recommendations were accepted. Man, I love that. 71% in yeah. long-term care. That's that's, fan, that's fantastic. Yeah. But what was even more crazy, I think, is that when they looked at cost avoidance of those changes, $234,000. And they wanted to be conservative. I liked how they said this. And yeah, they this did. Is, this, is, this is what it actually is, but we'll just go and we'll downplay this a little bit to make it more believable. And we'll just go with 162000 uh, and so that that came out to being around anywhere between a thousand to two thousand per participant. So obviously, huge uh, cost avoidance there um, like, for. Did you just PGH. hear that one thousand to two thousand per patient cost yeah. saving? That is per. huge. It far outweighs the cost of the test. Right, right. And there's so many out there. I mean, found another one looking at um, cost effectiveness. So especially related to the CPIC guidelines. Um, so that's the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. It's a mouthful, but that's what it stands for. I consortium. Consortium. Is that is that another <laughs> one of those niche words, like niche and niche? I a think consortium? so. Consortium? Uh, yeah. Let's just say CPIC guidelines. Well, listen, we got North and South uh, states represented here. So maybe you can put in, uh, let's just let us know on LinkedIn which one's right or not. Um, I'm probably wrong. That's okay. I'll be okay with it, I guess. <laughs> Won't shed too many tears. <laughs> but yeah, they looked in, at, at uh, this was a 2022 study, and they looked at the same kind of concept as the first study, looked at a, a bunch of different ones that were out there. Uh, what is PGX doing from a cost effectiveness standpoint? And, you know, newsflash, guess what they found? That it is very cost effective, and it did reduce the overall cost for those uh, participants, for those people that were in the study. Another one looked at cardiovascular disease. And in this one, basically, the pharmacogenomics were guiding them in the treatment courses for those pa for those patients. So uh, in, in some ways, they were going to like give them what they normally would give them for somebody that was going through that cardiovascular condition. But then they had these participants that were using pharmacogenetic guided treatments. And uh, this came from Science Direct. It was pretty uh, 
pretty unanimous that when they looked at cardiovascular disease, it was very cost effective, um, even over some of the other drugs and conditions that they looked at on there. Uh, and I always love these studies because they always end with, and more studies are needed for something like, and more studies are needed for this or that. And they said, you know, of course, it was cardiovascular. So more studies are needed for drugs and conditions that are not cardiovascular related, which makes sense. They weren't really looking at that. Um, well, it's hard to predict all the costs that your savings, costs that your savings, costs cost your savings that you are saving. Because, you know, think about like reduced hospitalization or prevention of one fall that may have resulted in a fracture. I mean, there's so much prevention of an adverse drug event. You just don't know how much you could be saving by avoiding, you know, inappropriate medication use or a patient that can't convert Plavix to the active form or something like that. It's, yeah, I think right. the savings on these studies have to be on the lower end because how do you monetize all of this? Right. And, and that kind of leads us right into the very last study that I'll reference on here. And we'll kind of talk about a few more things here related to long-term care, specific to long-term care. Again, all these studies, in case you're wondering to yourself, what settings were these done in? These were all done in elderly patients. So all long-term care uh, related patients and those that are um, over the age of 65, typically. Some of them did mention people less, but we I didn't give you those numbers as part of the what we just talked about. But uh, when well, there was this one study that was looking at basically um, this this idea of, of combination therapy where they're doing the pharmacogenomic testing similar to what they did in the, the cardiovascular disease study, but this was related to psychiatric patients, which I find fascinating, right? Um, and in this one, they were running the pharmacogenomics, and then they were using that to guide them on the psych meds that they were prescribing. And on average... Per year, they saw, for those that were over the age of 65, a $3,500 per patient per year savings, which is another huge just shout out for the cost containment, cost effectiveness, cost controlling uh, aspect of what pharmacogenomics can do. And so we'll talk a little bit about, like in a second, we're going to move into some of the top genes. And I'm going to be tossing it back and forth to Tamara, who's got a great amount of experience in this area, lots of knowledge, studies and things. But when we think about long-term care, the reason why I think this is so important is cost is huge in long-term care. I mean, we are always trying to minimize those medications that are being given to patients so that we can effectively have them on the right meds to reduce costs, to improve their therapy outcomes, things like that. Uh, if we're talking about skilled patients, so Part A patients, uh, we're always trying to minimize costs. And we'll go into all the reasons behind that, but from a pharmacy perspective, that can be a lot of the spend for those patients that are skilled. Um, but just in general, when you talk about uh, insurance and the claims and everything that we're doing from a medication standpoint, there's a lot of costs associated with the potentially inappropriate or unused or unneeded meds that these residents, these patients are are getting. And so, in the past, you know, we talked a lot on this show about uh, things like when you have somebody on Warfarin and maybe they're on Bactrim and we need to monitor their INR more. And we talk a lot about like blood pressure and you're looking at blood pressure ranges and all these different kinds of things. But so, so many of the other meds that these patients are on, it's been really hard to know, like we talked about in the last episode, what is needed and what's not needed. Well, now we finally have 
a tool that really can help us with some of the routine meds that these patients are on and reduce the cost. Like what we just talked about, highlighted cardiovascular disease, highlighted psychiatric conditions, which affects a ton of our patients that are in the elderly space. So I think this is a, a great tool to work into the overall uh, kind of tools that we're using in long-term care. I mean, what am I missing, Tamara? There's probably more well, to it. Well, I couldn't that. agree more, but what I was thinking as you're talking is think about the patients with dementia that can't verbalize maybe some of the side effects they're having or what they might be going through. Think any uh, patient that's vulnerable that maybe can't verbalize um, side effects and things like that, this is so great for. Um, you can just spot side effects they might be having. Maybe the medication's building up and they're going to have side effects from that. Maybe they're a predicted non-responder to a certain medication. And so this is really helpful for those vulnerable people. I mean, it is for all adults, but I specifically right. think about those who can't verbalize, you know, what they might be going through and how we could help them by doing a cheek swab. You know, maybe that's their voice. Right. That's a fantastic point. I mean, we see that quite a bit and we've talked about that on the show before, even just like pain meds, like we've talked about uh, where, you know, there's so many different pain scales out there, but oftentimes we use a numeric pain scale. So just like that, uh, they're not oftentimes able to illustrate effectively or verbalize effectively what they need. I think that's a fantastic point. So you guys are probably listening in and wondering to yourselves, well, all right, these are all elderly patients, right? What are some of the top gene drug interactions that are currently seen in PGX in long-term care. Well, one of the studies that we referenced earlier brought these out. I kind of cross-referenced it. I can't even talk. Cross-referenced it <laughs> with what Tamara has seen in her practice setting as well. And she's going to share some of these things that she's seen. But some of the top gene drug interactions, um, 20, I think this study, there was 25% were taking this, if not more, um, and that was a drug that fell under the CYP2C19. And if you're wondering what some of those drugs are, amitriptyline, citalopram, Plavix falls in there, a huge one there, omeprazole, pantoprazole, et cetera. So, yeah, Tamar, what have you seen on your side? Yeah, I think the ones that they list as the top, you know, gene drug interactions are accurate for what I've seen as well. CYP2C19, of course, you know, you don't see a ton of it uh, with the clopidogrel or the Plavix in long-term care, but those ones are pretty significant. If you can't convert clopidogrel to the active form, you put yourself at decreased response and increased risk of adverse cardiovascular events. And so I have seen it. I mean, it's not like I've tested all these people and never come across a patient that's taking clopidogrel in there an intermediate or poor metabolizer at 2C19. I've probably, I don't know, 15, I would say, in the 150 nursing home patients I've tested have been on clopidogrel and had right. intermediate or poor metabolizer. But those are really significant and need addressed right away. Um, I suppose, you know, in North Dakota, we don't have that much diversity. And so maybe if you have patients with different backgrounds who are more susceptible to being poor or intermediate metabolizers at 2C19, you would probably see more of it. And so it, it might just be the area that I live that I haven't seen that much, but that's a big one. For 2C19, you see the PPIs all the time, those proton pump inhibitors. If right. they're a rapid or ultra rapid um, metabolizer at 2C19, they're gonna have decreased exposure and uh, decreased effectiveness with those medications. And so I, you know how much we use PPIs in older adults. And so oh, you'll yeah. come across that one a lot. And so the problem that I've seen is they might, you know, be a rapid metabolizer at 2C19. They're taking omeprazole and then um, maybe they're a predicted better responder to S-omeprazole. But again, those darn Part D plans. 
Um, I've run it across a few times where, you know, esomeprazole would probably work better. Maybe we could do a smaller doses and it would be more effective, but that Part D plan doesn't want to cover it. So right. you do run into some of that stuff, but those are some common medications you for sure see with the 2C19. Now the name of the game right now won't cover this. Well, this insurance plan won't cover that. It is a just a toss-up anymore. Uh, another big one that we see are the statins, which fall under the SLCO1B1. I'm sure there's like fancy ways to say these, like slicko or something, but I mean, I don't, just, know. I don't know. I mean, that's that's just what I'm going to go with. But uh, I obviously tons of statins in long-term care. Yeah. Yep. And so if you have poor function at the SLCO1B1, um, you're you're at increased risk of side effects, right? You have increased exposure to these medications. It's not all stands, but it's quite a few and increased exposure. There is some CPIC um, guidelines for these. And so maybe it's just going to be recommended decrease the dose or cap the dose off at a certain milligram instead of going higher to decrease the risk of side effects. But the SLCO1B1 is like a transport um, gene to get the statin to the site of action. And so when you have poor function, you're at increased risk of increased exposure and increased side effects. Um, of course, increased risk of myopathy, right? Again, when our older adults can't tell us that they're having pain, I think this is very valuable. And right. um, and to a lot of old, older folks are just tough people who don't want to complain. And so it's nice to have this data to show, oh, we need to decrease their dose because they might be having an increased exposure to this medication. That's so true. And the, a lot of these elderly patients that I've gotten to meet through the years are just some tough individuals that have pain all the time or different things all the time and won't complain about a thing. I mean, they just tough, tough as can be. Um, I found it interesting. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, I did find it interesting. This study was only 20% that were taking Simvastatin, which I, I mean, I feel like everybody and their cousin and their cousin's dog in long-term care is on a statin. So that's, yeah. uh, that number is probably much higher in our setting than, than I would say with this study. Another big gun, the, uh, 2D6, CYP 2D6 ones, which fall under a lot of them, uh, codeine, amitriptyline, uh, you name it, uh, Risperdal falls under that too. What, what all have you seen, Tamara? Yeah, for 2D6, uh, I see all the pain meds, of course, the hydrocodone, the codeine, tramadol, all of those have decreased effectiveness. If you're a poor or intermediate at 2D6, you can't convert it to the active form, which results in decreased pain relief, decreased effectiveness. So I see that a ton. Also, metaprolol, I mean, that med is prescribed a boatload in long-term yes. care. And so... Um, you know, increased exposure if you're a 2D6 poor intermediate metabolizer, which you can see cold extremities, dizziness, things like that, that happen with the metaprolol if you're a little sluggish in your metabolism there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's prescribed a ton. I mean, we see that across the board. Um, we, we have the interesting things about sustenate and tartrate, and sometimes those are mixed up. You, a lot of times we'll see the once a day tartrate and things along those lines or twice a day sustenates, which... I guess there's some growing evidence out there for supporting that. Uh, I I think I posted that on LinkedIn one day and somebody reached out to me and I think that person, I won't use her name on here just to shout out over the air to a lot of people, but um, brought up that they were working with cardiovascular um, kind of specialty uh, centered care and they were seeing a lot of use of sesame twice a day. So yeah, Metaprolol, 
huge when I was maybe their rapid metabolizers are ultra rapid and so they need it twice I'm, a day. I'm just I mean, say, just throw it out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I just have to say that when I was in pharmacy school, when I was first first in, I would always call that metoprolol because it just rolled off the tongue for my southern accent. Metoprolol sound is so Good, but I guess is that how you say it? I always say metaprolol. What am I? It, metaprolol is right, evidently. I mean, I looked it up one time on like you know you Google it and you have some random person on YouTube that says that's how it is, and so it must be true, right? <laughs> so <laughs> metaprolol, I think, is right. But um, yeah, you can let us know. Just message us on LinkedIn on that one too. Just like the first word we our we, pronunciations. We're just hey between. Niche, niche, metaprolol, all Listen, of it. Listen, never once have analysis. we we said we would be 100% right on pronunciations on this show. That's so right. just don't hold know. us. There's our disclaimer right there. Yeah, we'll have to put it in the show notes so that you guys know. <laughs> uh, another massive one that we see is 2C9. So CYP2C9. Um, lots of drugs that fall under that, like Celebrex, uh, um, Mobic, you, you name it, uh, phenytoin, dilantin, that falls under there as well. But I think, Tamara, you were saying that a lot of times you see what, like ibuprofen wanted or? Yeah. So the NSAIDs you see with 2C9, you know, if you have poor intermediate metabolism at 2C9, you have increased exposure. So decreasing the dose is helpful. And we know NSAIDs are not great drugs for our older adults anyway. So it would be right. a good time as you're doing this med review to maybe review the duration they've been on it and potentially get them on something a little bit safer um, for an older adult and less inappropriate. Also, losartan with 2C9, um, decreased response to losartan if you're a poor metabolizer um, due to inability to convert to the active metabolite. And I was just telling Scott, I don't really love losartan as a medication anyway, because of the the, it's, the half-life is like two hours. I feel like by lunch. Even the losartan fans out there booing you right now. But I know. I don't think there's I'm not many. a fan. There's, there's so many, many people that have come to the pharmacy and their pressures are not controlled. And I don't, I just recommend, hey, have you tried something like Olmosartan instead and talk to their doctor and they switch and it's just much better controlled. So kind of an Olmosartan fan, Scott and I were talking about this before the podcast. Yeah, I'm telling you what, that drug smells good. And I don't know know that I'm making like a a point to smell every drug, but I think every pharmacist (laughs) out there has, like you're dispensing it, right? Like you smell it. Benicar always smelled so good, like that buttered popcorn smell. Mm. It was, so it's like a win-win. Better drug, buttered popcorn. I'm that in the raspberry scented, isn't there a raspberry or blueberry scented metformin? That's there's just, a blueberry. I remember oh, that. I one. like that too. Those are my favorite. Listen, if so if you gotta smell something that smells like fish and then you switch it to a blueberry scented fish, I mean it smells a lot better. It smells a lot better. Take the blueberry, yeah. <laughs> to think to yeah, blueberry every time. So <laughs> um, so so those are some of the top ones. And if you're wondering, and if you do pharmacogenomics in your setting, I'd be interested to know what you see primarily. Uh, if those are the same ones that you're seeing, or maybe you see different ones. I'm sure that it depends on your setting for sure. But um, well, I'll tell you, it kind of varies based on the facility I've noticed. So oh. I've tested some facilities where um, it's striking, like um, one facility was 80% were intermediate or poor at 2D6, which was just crazy. 
But then wow. um, one of the bigger facilities I did, it was about 50% that were intermediate at 2D6. So I say 2D6 is huge because you do see a lot of those intermediate and poor metabolizers. Right. Um, for statin tolerance, when I tested those 85 patients, 67 were normal and 15 had decreased function. So 15 you know, patients that were potentially on a statin needed a dose adjustment. So um, I think that's significant. Yeah, I think that's huge. Yeah. And we're talking about all these um, cost savings and all these significant gene drug interactions. And it's so great for the facility and the patients. And the only problem is getting the pharmacist paid and the pharmacist. <laughs> yeah, which moves <laughs> us into the most probably controversial and hard topic. And that is the challenges, because I think, you know, oftentimes it's so easy and I like we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, we kind of alluded to this, that pharmacogenomics seems just incredible, absolutely incredible. And, you know, yet at the same time, there are some challenges, there are some some drawbacks to it. And, and one of those is workflow and time. Um, yeah, I, I was calculating the hours I put in. Oh, um, man. So when I tested those 85 patients in June, um, it was 82 hours I had into that little project, um, which I do tell facilities it's about like a half to one hour per patient. I think maybe that one took a little longer because it was my first facility, but uh, right. It's, it's right about almost an hour per patient you got to anticipate putting into it. Um, so there is time. The workflow piece is hard too, because you test them and you do that initial big review with their meds, but what happens when they're prescribed new medications? Right. Uh, is the dispensing pharmacy going to look at that report? Is the provider, how is that going to work to incorporate that into the workflow? Yeah, it's just there. So I feel like this is a constant balancing act in long-term care of, you know, we want to make sure that patient care is always the, at the forefront of our minds, right? And this is such a great tool for patient care, but you still have everything else you got to do too. As a consultant pharmacist, you can't just do PGX and then not make sure that they're even passing medications. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what you recommend on PGX because if the home's not passing the medication or there's somebody that's not getting that the ordering done appropriately or something like that, uh, guess what? The med's not there for them to give. So, you know, you can make all the best recommendations in the world. I tell my team this all the time. But if you don't know what's happening at that facility, then it really doesn't matter. And I think PGX falls into that same kind of boat. Now you've got this really great tool, but not only do you have to work up this whole patient, which like to Tamara's point, could take an hour per single person, which that's a lot of time invested for just one person. But then you also have everything else that you need to be doing. You've got to educate the home, the potentially the patients, depending on the setting that you're working in. If it's assisted living, maybe it's patient, patient families. Uh, if it's long-term care, skilled facility, you know, you've got to educate the nursing staff, the doctors. And all of this at the concept of the big question of who's who's paying for the the time. Because yes, we want to make sure that patient care is at the forefront, but we also can't work for free either. And that's where we're seeing a lot of big question marks when it comes to PGX and a lot of struggles, I think, not just in long-term care, but in other settings of PGX as well. Well, the good news is usually if a patient has a qualifying, you know, medication and diagnosis and some kind of risk stratification that shows benefit to PGX testing, 
the skilled nursing facility patient might get that test paid for by Medicare. Right. So then it's kind of a question of, yeah, um, luckily it's a benefit to the patient, but then how will the pharmacist get paid? Is the facility going to pay? Yeah. Is not going to pay? Who's going to pay? Um, so that's kind of the question mark there. And we are the medication experts. We're doing all this for our patients and we want to do it for our patients because we love them and we care about them and want what's best for them. But we do need to be somehow reimbursed for our time <laughs> to provide for our families as well. So right. yeah, that's that's a tough part. It is. There's so much good to be had. And, and there's always this balancing act, just like anything else in life, I guess, that you have to figure out how you're compensated. But, you know, uh, workflow. Um, informatics support. So how is this incorporating into your day to day? Like, is it in your software? Or are you having to use another software? Uh, I think uh, pharmacists and specifically consultant pharmacists are pretty creatures of habit. Like a lot of times whenever we've, I don't know, and Tamara, if you've seen this too, but like whenever I've asked my team to go to different softwares to do things like if they've got to go to two or three it's just like most people i don't think this is specific just to pharmacists but that slowly fades off on how compliant they are to those things because yeah. and if you're listening in on my team i'm not telling on you i'm just being honest i'm the same way but you know the more uh hoops you have to jump through the the less you know, compliant people get and i think that's one of the other things is that PGX is not always integrated in a way that is is user friendly enough for a consultant to do it uh, in a much easier format. Um, you're having to look at those results and you have to work through those results and you're having to determine what you're going to do and then often go back to another piece of software to then input all said results and then follow up with another piece of paper that has been, you know, uh, faxed to the doctor and that they've returned. And so there's so many steps to this that uh, I think a lot of times it falls off on the utilization usefulness of it. Uh, the more things that the the consultants are having to juggle to try to make this, this happen. Yeah. In the end, um, there's a lot of challenges, but I do think just based on the patients I've tested and the results I've seen, <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's definitely, I think, worth it to start implementing um, I'm probably biased because I've done it and I've seen such good results with it. And of course, there's those people that, you know, have a med in the green, but it's not working for them or they're hoping for some kind of, you know, magic bullet or something to change their loved one. And it might not be the answer, but it's certainly a piece of the puzzle. And I do think it's worth it to implement for our patients and for our facilities. Um, it does a lot of good, but yeah. Yes, there's challenges. There's for sure challenges, but I do think the benefits outweigh those challenges. And I'm just going to put a shameless plug in. I do have a course on how to start <laughs> doing PGX and long-term care on my website, thedeeperstrategy.com. If you have questions or think you want to start doing it, um, it's kind of a step-by-step -step guide for you. Take the course. It's fantastic. Tamara does a great job with that. And and I would echo, you know, I probably am the one out of the two of us that came into PGX with more history to PGX and having um, had some of the negative sides of that before we got into kind of where we are today with PGX and long-term care. And so it, it took me a good amount to get over that hurdle to see the benefits still of it. Uh, versus all the drawbacks and the challenges and the different things related lab companies, et cetera, so forth. But I feel like nowadays, especially after doing these podcasts, doing more research in it, and then seeing it also in practice, uh, I do see the benefits of it. I mean, there are definite challenges. I mean, that's not to be 
um, underrated. I mean, there's there's some definite uh, hurdles to get over, but with the patient care as a center of my mind, is, is the center of Tamer's mind, probably, and, and should be, I think, the center of everybody's mind in healthcare. That's what we got into this for. There is, this is a great tool to be able to help with that. And I've always been one that, you know, you we saw this in practice before, and I mentioned this last time, that you would give somebody the same drug as somebody else, and they would respond differently to it. And with the relation to guidelines and stuff, we oftentimes refer to that and we go, well, this is what they're supposed to start on. In fact, every new pharmacist that we hire on, a lot of times we get this same thing where they're like, well, but this is what they're supposed to be on. And I think there is uh, something to be said about precision medicine related to the genetics of that person. And that although it may say this in a guideline, this is what's most appropriate for that person in order for them to have the best results. And so I think there's an obvious place for it, uh, working it in. And I think we'll see more ways to integrate with software. We'll see more ways for uh, billing to, to uh, compensate for the time that we're seeing on the pharmacy end, but a great, great tool. So we hope that this has been a helpful little, uh, I would say this very basic intro into yeah. pharmacogenomics and long-term care. Take Tamara's course for a more in-depth <laughs> to look into pharmacogenomics and long-term care. And, uh, and you know, we have appreciated the feedback as well. I want to sh- give a shout out to all the listeners. We've had so many of you guys graciously reach out to us and tell us how much you enjoyed the podcast, the last uh, one on PGX and how you learned so much and you want to know more. And we love that. And so do that with anything that you're looking at for long-term care. If you're curious, we are more than happy to jump into it. But this has been our little series on PGX. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. Thank you. You guys have a great rest of the day.